Thank you, Blake. Well, I am. I just have to say, I am stunned at how many people are here today. That's really awesome. You should give yourselves a hand for being that into God's Word that you'd be willing to do that. That's really, really cool. Um, uh, it's good to be back. If you haven't been around, <laughs> I haven't been here. So uh, it's nice to be back. We had a great trip, Robbie and I did, for her 60th birthday. And it was a great getaway. And I really appreciate uh, Janelle and Matt filling in for me while I was gone. Um, actually, I appreciate everyone who works so hard to, to serve this community and to meet the needs that are here. It's pretty wonderful what God's doing here. Uh, so back in November, uh, November 8th, 2020, we had just started in-person meetings again. Remember when we went through a period of time where we didn't have in-person meetings? And when we all gathered in here, we were all wearing masks. We made it a requirement that everybody have to wear a mask. And so uh, in, in uh, November 8th, 2020, uh, we were wearing masks in our services. And I think we'd only had like three or four uh, in-person services again. And we started uh, a study in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and today, we are going to be concluding that study. Uh, this is my second time teaching through the Gospel of Luke. And I'll tell you, I just learned so many more things this time around. That's the amazing thing about God's Word to me, that you can just keep digging into it and digging into it, and it seems to never exhaust uh, all of the things, that the, the resources that are there to, to glean from. You know, the early church spent all of its time going over the story of Jesus over and over again, rehearsing that and sharing that. And I really felt compelled to, to come back to the Gospels on a regular basis. And, you know, it means that we're going to be teaching through them two, three, four times, depending on how long I live. But uh, uh, I, I, can't, I can't see how we would go wrong doing that. That's an important aspect of who we are as followers of Jesus. And I feel like there, there needs to be a lot of, a, a lot of space carved out for examining that and looking at what it is that Jesus did and taught. And, and uh, so that's just one of those things. We'll be coming back to a gospel before too long here. Today uh, is 9-11, and uh, it's a date that we all remember, I'm sure. It's a date that marked a terrible event that, that had such a profound impact on, uh, you know, it, it changed so many things uh, in our country and in our society as a whole. And we recognize that day. We, we remember all of those who sacrificed so much and the consequent uh, conflicts that resulted from that event. And it's a, it's a day that we remember with sobriety and, and with care because of everything that it represents. But today, this morning, uh, in this time that we have here together, we're going to be focusing on a different event, one that predated that event uh, by many, 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 many years. It happened a long time ago, and it's an event that changed the world for the better in that situation. It's an event that continues to benefit everyone who remembers it and who will put their faith and trust in the one with whom this event uh, was surrounding. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, if you'll find your way to Luke chapter 24. In our last reading of Luke, last week we, we had a teaching on baptism, but the week before that... Uh, uh, we were in chapter 24 of Luke. We read about the two who were on the road to Emmaus uh, who were traveling along and suddenly found themselves joined by a mysterious traveler who turned out to be none other than the risen Jesus. And Janelle did a great job of examining that passage, reminding us of how Jesus can meet us in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of our pains. 
And when we left off, the two, two travelers had run back to Jerusalem to tell the elder disciples about what had happened with them, how, how they had encountered a risen Jesus. And today we're going to read the subsequent, uh, the, the subsequent events that, that basically rocked those first disciples' world and then eventually uh, had an impact all around the world. It's an event that we have to remember. It's an event we never want to lose sight of. We've mentioned before that one of the big shifts, transitions that took place among those Jewish followers of Jesus who had gathered on Saturdays all the time in the synagogues shifted over to Sundays. And the reason for that was because of the event that took place on that, uh, on that day that Jesus rose from the dead, it being the first day of the week. So every time we gather together, every Sunday when the church worldwide is gathering together, we are in essence celebrating Easter. We're remembering that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and the impact of that event after 2,000 years is still present with us today, bringing us peace, bringing us purpose, bringing us passion, bringing things into our lives we never could have known on our own. So if you're there in Luke chapter 24, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're starting with verse 36. It says, just as they, they being the two who were on the road to Emmaus, were telling about it, this event that happened when Jesus was appearing to them, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost. Because ghosts don't have bodies, as you see I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and feet. Still, they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. And then he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched. Nothing awkward about that. <laughs> Nothing better in all the world than eating something while the whole room watches you. Uh, do it. So just like in John's account of this, Jesus just shows up like he's been there all along. The two from Emmaus are all excited and out of breath probably and telling their story about what had happened. And, and as they're all looking at each other, they suddenly happen to notice that in the room, Jesus is standing there too, kind of nodding, like agreeing with the story. Jesus is remarkably different uh, after the resurrection. He seems to appear out of nowhere in these accounts of him. And yet he clearly has a real physicality, just a different sort of physicality about him. It's fascinating to me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to just have to bear with me on this part. So this, this is the stuff that I, I'm not supposed to be a pastor. You guys know that, right? <laughs> I'm supposed to be a cartoonist, but somehow I'm, I'm here and I think like a cartoonist. So here's the fascinating thing to me about this account is that, that one thing the Gospels make very clear to us is that the disciples believed in ghosts. They did. When Jesus shows up walking on the water and, you know, he's out there doing that, what is their first reaction? They think it's a ghost. They, they think anytime Jesus seems to show up in some unusual way, they're just, you know, I don't know. I don't know if they were watching too much paranormal Palestine or what, but anytime Jesus shows up in an unusual way, they're immediately like, I knew it. Goats have come. That's it. They're here. But what's even more odd to me about this whole event here is that Jesus doesn't correct them. I mean, he, you know, he not even like, so they shout ghost 
And Jesus corrects their, their lack of faith and their fear. You know, don't be afraid. Don't be unbelieving or whatever. But he doesn't say, grow up. There's no such thing as ghosts. No, instead he says, no, 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 no. Ghosts don't have bodies. You, you can't. Wait, really? I'll let you guys puzzle that out. You can't touch ghosts. The ghosts are all in there. Don't, 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 don't. Can't touch it. But you have to figure that all out. I don't even understand what to do with that. It's really not Luke's point. Again, as I said, I'm really not supposed to be here doing this, but here we are. Luke, like the other gospel writers, is trying to communicate that if the disciples were looking for God to be some sort of wispy spiritual being, a philosophical concept, a metaphor, a ghost, what they get instead is the Lord of heaven and earth chewing on a fish fillet sandwich. They've got a God who is here in our midst. Our God works and moves in the realm of flesh and blood, not just disembodied spirit. There's a tendency, especially because of Plato's influence on the church, a tendency to want to disembody God, to keep him at, at a distance from the created order, to create some sort of distinction, like we're in this shell waiting to be released, etc. But that's not the case. God made this flesh. God interacts with this flesh. We're dealing with a God who interacts and, and moves and lives among us here in our present fleshly existence. And Jesus is intent on showing them that he is really, truly present with them in a very different way, but present nonetheless. Jesus is alive and interacting with us in ways that profoundly impact our lives. And this is a repeat of, of a point that was being driven home in the last portion of text that we were reading last, last time. But Luke is clearly emphasizing this, so I'm going to too. And that is that the risen Jesus is present in the church to bring us peace. The risen Christ is present here with us, bringing us peace. See, you can almost hear him walking up. Okay, (laughs) kidding. So he showed up on that first Sunday. How did he get there? I don't know. They don't even bother to tell us. We don't know. How does he come to us now? I don't know. I don't really know. But the thing is, he keeps showing up. If we read the other gospel accounts, we read into the book of Acts, we realize that the following Sunday, the same thing happens again. Jesus keeps showing up. He shows up and he still shows up today. He keeps coming back to be among his gathered disciples, present in the worship, present in his word, present in our prayers and in our love for one another. The risen Christ is present with the gathering of his followers. This is the point that that Luke wants to make. Christ is present in the church, and we don't ever want to forget that. And his presence in our midst is part of the shaping process of our lives. His presence here is what begins to, to alter us and change us. And the first thing that he says when he appears is, peace be with you. It's it's shalom which is a, it's a normal greeting that you would find in Israel to this day, shalom. But Luke putting it here in this appearance tells me this is more than just Jesus saying, hey, y'all, this is Jesus bringing something to us, bringing something into our midst as we gather. He keeps coming back to be among his 
present disciples bringing this peace, shalom. Now, shalom is, is more than just the absence of conflict. We think in terms of peace, we normally think of it in a very one-dimensional sense of, yeah, we're, you're not in conflict, so we're at peace. But the, the, the word shalom carries with it a far more weighty idea, the idea of wholeness, of well-being, of stability in life. So when he comes saying, peace be with you, he is in effect saying wholeness has come to you here. Stability has come to you. It is well with your soul because the risen Christ is here among us. And think about what's stressing these disciples. There's a fear of the future. What's going to happen now? There's shame over their past. You think about Peter and his denial of Jesus. There's confusion about the present. What's going on here? How are we going to make it through this? Jesus comes to release them from all of that. He leads off with these words, Shalom, peace to you. So how many of us find ourselves in that same situation? Even when we gather here on Sunday mornings, like, like this morning, today, we struggle with some regrettable past we have. We stress over our present circumstances, what's going on. We fret about a certain that, a, a future that seems so uncertain to us. Here in the gathering of his followers, while he's present here, present right here among us, with us in that unique way, let's listen to his words. Peace be with you. In Christ's forgiveness, your past is forgotten. In his sovereignty, your future is in his hands. Everything is safe in his hands. And in our present circumstances, he's by our side right here, right now, to bring comfort and to strengthen and to direct and to empower us for what he's called us to be or called us to do. So let's receive his peace. He's here. He's present. As much as he was present with those disciples then, he's here to bring you peace. Let's receive it. Okay, moving on. Verse 44. Then he said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I'll send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. So just like with the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus repeats that the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms, which was a way of saying, based on the Hebrew structure of the scriptures, is a way of saying from beginning to end, from the beginning of the scriptures to the end of them that they had at that time, all that was forecast about Messiah was going to be fulfilled by Jesus. I've always thought it would have been really handy if they would have gone ahead and told us exactly which scriptures he was referring to. But then again, maybe that's the point. It draws us into this, and it requires that participation on our part to get into this, to dig into this, to find out what it is that he was saying. And, you know, that lack of detail actually um, prompts us then to, to activity in this. But verse 45 shows a pivotal change that takes place in the disciples. Veil gets pulled back there. And and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it says they begin to understand the scriptures. 
They're beginning to see this in a fresh light, in a new way. Something changes in them from that point onward. And in Luke volume 2, which is the book of Acts, we see it all very clearly. You know, all through the gospel accounts, not just Luke's, but in all the gospel accounts, the disciples really are pretty clueless. They, They don't understand what's going on most of the time. They're perplexed. They don't get what he's trying to say. But not here. Now they're able to to process the scriptures in ways that they hadn't been able to before. Something fundamentally changes at this time. He tells them that they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim to all the world that forgiveness of sin is found from turning from the broken patterns of this fallen world, the broken patterns of sin that, that dehumanize us and destroy things as well as ourselves, and, and, and begin to place our trust in Christ, in this new humanity that he's developing and, and drawing out of us. And they're witnesses, he says, to these things. So they and we then, as the continued followers of Jesus, have something to do. And this all goes together to let us know that the risen Jesus brings enlightenment and purpose to our lives. The very first thing that happens to these disciples after Jesus rises from the dead is that they have their minds opened to the scriptures. And I don't believe this was just for them. I believe this is for all of us, to have our, our, uh, an enlightenment provided to us. I believe this was intended for all of us, to draw us into the story of the Bible so we find our place in that, able to recognize its relevance, able to see its power to shape our lives differently, unfold in our own experiences, but not just as an act of consumption, on our part, which kind of can become a problematic thing. Once we begin to actually see the scriptures and begin to understand some things, it is very easy to slip into a consumerist mindset that I'm here to take this in. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm getting fed. This is great. But it's not just for our own consumption, but to activate us as his witnesses in the world. Witnesses of God's power to change our lives, to change hearts, to to transform what was lost into a living hope, just as these disciples had happened with them. And you notice here that Jesus doesn't say, now go be my witnesses. Or if you have time, you could try being a witness. He didn't even say you're going to become my witnesses. He says very plainly there, you are my witnesses. And the Greek bears this out. It's in the active present tense. That means to be a witness isn't something that we aspire to or volunteer for. It's a state of being for each of us who've believed on him. So too often I've thought about witnessing as like, as like, well, like an introvert's nightmare, Uh, you know, as, as something that I'm supposed to go do, but something for which I have Zero skills and even less enthusiasm for. Because we usually see it, right, as some sort of awful kind of awkward thing, like a, like a cold sales approach to something. Can I tell you about Jesus? No, I just want to know if you want fries with that order. Those kinds of things that just, you know, are hard for me. And all of those systems, this is interesting. I was having a discussion with another pastor friend of mine. All of these systems for witnessing that we come up with, isn't it weird that the apostles never did any of that stuff. I mean, we'd never read anything like the systems for witnessing that we read about in our modern church context. We never read anything like that in the book of Acts or thereafter in any of Paul's writings. 
That's something to ponder. That's something I feel like we need to step back and think about for a minute. Jesus told them and us, you are witnesses. It's who you are once you've placed your faith in this risen Jesus. Once we've believed on him, we are witnesses. Our, 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 our lives, our, our committed lives to this risen Christ become a testimony to what this risen Christ is all about, which means how we live, how we speak, how we interact with our fellow person, what our priorities and our values are, all of those are bearing witness as to who God is and what this risen Christ is like. Now, there's a negative side to that as well, something we have to ponder for a moment. Because if our life is filled with outrage and anger or fear, that's bearing witness as well. But it's sending the wrong image of what this God we serve, what this risen Christ is really like. Our lives are a witness. Listen, there are times when we directly communicate our beliefs about Jesus. We invite someone to trust him like we have. But I would say the majority of our time, it's us as witnesses living as as it is in... Did that get loud? Oh, it's because of this thing fell off. Here we go again. Shake hands, McShakey. Going to try to... That's not going to work, I can tell you right now. There we go. (laughs) And that's what I get applause for, right? (laughs) There it is. What was my point? My point was, most of the time, our lives as witnesses is living as it is in heaven into this world. That's what Jesus told us. That was the prayer. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Living out the hope that we have in this risen Jesus. Extending the forgiveness to others that we've received from him. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's, it comes back to, you know, and, and this is going to freak you out because I'm going to say it's how we live. You could say it's how our works are revealed in this world. And there's the thing. We don't do good works to earn our salvation. We can't do that. There's no way we could do enough that was ever going to expunge the, the weight of sin. We can't earn our salvation through good works. We do good works because we're saved. It's our witness to a broken world. It's our declaration of the goodness of God. That's why how we live does matter, not because it's our entrance or bar, bar, bar uh, our, our entrance or, or prohibition. That's, that's a, not to get us into heaven, but, but, but because heaven is already in us and it's being broadcast out. That's why how we live means something. So this is our purpose. This is the very reason that we've been enlightened enlightened by the gospel of Jesus to be able to represent this, the reality of this risen Savior in the world where we live. Okay, finishing up, verse 50. Then Jesus led them to Bethany, and lifting his hands to heaven, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy, And they spent all of their time in the temple praising God. That's a scene I wish would get a little more attention in movies and and art. Christ's ascension. I went through a whole thing that was listing off, you know, all the different places in movies where Christ's ascension 
has been shown, and it's very few. Like, it's actually just a handful of movies that even deal with this. I think it's, a, I think it's an important thing we don't want to lose sight of. But, but uh, in Luke's next work, the book of Acts, he describes the disciples standing there looking up into the sky, not moving until some angels come by and shake them out of their stupor. I mean, what would you do in that moment? Like, you think about it, like, put yourself in their sandals, and you're, you're with Jesus, and it's odd enough that he's back from the dead, and you're trying to process that whole thing, and then as he's talking, he blesses you, and, and he vanishes before your eyes. What are you going to do with that? I mean, where do you go from there? What do you, how do you start to make sense of life or anything after that moment? I, I think it's pretty stunning stuff. Now, we need to understand that this event does not mean that Jesus shot off into outer space or something like that. In the biblical narrative, heaven and earth are meant to be descriptors as locations for God and humanity. So in the Garden of Eden, those realms, God's realm and the human realm, overlapped. God's realm was perfectly integrated within human creation space. Uh, In the, the fall of sin, those spaces were divided. So Jesus ascending means that in this new physicality, he has slipped into God's unseen realm. It's a, it's a picture then of heaven and earth reunited. It's a picture of where we're going. Jesus is now permanently in both God's space and humanity's space. And that is the end game that we as his followers are heading towards. This is our hope and what we're anticipating. This is, this is what salvation is all about. The restoration of creation, of coming back to that state where God's realm and the realm of creation overlap and are perfectly integrated once again. And it's just like we learned uh, last week in the teaching on baptism. Jesus was the first one through the chaotic waters into new life at his baptism. Now he's the first one through this veil into a reunited heaven and earth. It's a picture of what it is that's to come. And, and this is what we who follow him are hoping towards. Again, I just want to remind us that, you know, the, the flattening out of the gospel that says that the gospel is all about us getting saved so that we go to heaven in the end is not the complete gospel. It's missing a lot of stuff there. And what we're really missing is the end game. We're looking for the restoration, the resurrection and the restoration of all things. All things put back together the way they were meant to be. Life as God originally intended it to be here on this restored planet. But anyway, the effect that this had on Jesus's followers is notable because they worshiped him, which again shows that there was more to him than just another man. This is more than just a prophet. They're not going to do, they're not going to worship someone like that. They worshiped him. They're filled with great joy and they spent all of their time praising God in the temple, the temple being the placeholder for God's restored creation. I think the reason they went to the temple was because they'd just seen the fulfillment of what the temple stood for. They were able to interpret it properly now, and it stirred their anticipation for what's to come. We've just seen how this works. We've just seen how this is, this is going to happen, the, the temple reflecting God's uh, integration with created space like that. So this, to me, is a reminder that the risen Jesus inspires passionate anticipation in our hearts, a passionate anticipation for what it is that that God is doing in this world. They so totally believed that Jesus had made the way back 
to original creation. They totally believed that they would see him again. They weren't even disappointed by the fact that he was now missing again. Because think about that. They just got Jesus back, and he leads them out to Bethany, and he disappears, and they're like, ah, you were just here. Now what? They don't have that reaction. The reaction is they're filled with great joy. Why? Because they're anticipating where this is leading. They're recognizing and realizing he's the first fruits. He's the first one through. And that means we're all going through as well. We're all going to participate in this restored creation. All things set right again. No more war. No more disease. No more heartache or pain. Every tear wiped away. That's a beautiful thing. That's a thing to be excited about and anticipating in our hearts. This wasn't just the setting up of another dry religion that we can go through the motions of over and over again to sort of placate the misery that we're in. This is a declaration. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He's putting all things back to rights again. And it begins in our hearts and it ends with this whole world. There's something wonderful about this to me. And man, if there's anything that I'd love to see happen in the American modern church is a passion for Jesus and his restored creation. I don't mean emotionalism either. What you just witnessed was emotionalism. Forget all that. Emotionalism, listen, emotions are fleeting. They're like the waves that get whipped up on the surface. But passion, passion's that deep current that drives whole oceans. A passion for Christ and his kingdom that steers every decision that we make. I see a lot of passion in the church, a passion for partisan politics, a passion for doctrines and morals, a passion for celebrity leaders, a passion for big churches and church growth and numbers. But no matter how much we love those things, they'll never love us back. Not like our king. We are a bride yearning for the bridegroom. We are a kingdom longing for our king. And maybe if we set our passion on Jesus and his kingdom, we'd know the great joy those early disciples had in those moments. Maybe we'll hear this this morning and it'll stir that anticipation in our hearts and it will result in joy in our lives that transcends the stuff we're seeing all around us. That wouldn't matter what those those garbage bilges of 24-hour news are dumping into our living rooms. Wouldn't matter about any of that stuff. We transcend that because we know where this is going and nothing's turning that around. So, <laughs> so that's where Luke concludes his gospel accounts. It goes from there into the book of Acts. This band of bumbling disciples turn the world upside down with their passion for Jesus and a world that's restored. And it's a good pattern for us to follow, to continue on in as we look towards this good future. So we've studied this gospel for about two years now. And I hope that we haven't read it as an interesting history or an explanation for the doctrines we hold. I hope beyond hope that we take our place with these disciples that we embrace the hope of this good news, that we step into this long line of restored souls and take our part in this story of God's redemption of all things. After reading about Jesus' life and his words and his ministry and his love, I hope we see the gospel. I hope we see this good news with fresh eyes.
God has fulfilled His promise. His good King has come to make all things new, beginning with our hearts and finishing with the whole world. And we are His witnesses. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that we have these Gospel accounts to come back to again and again. And as we come back to it each time, Lord, You open our eyes a little wider. You expand our hearts just by that much more so that we begin to to take in the wonder and the glory of what it is that you're doing, not only in our lives and in our hearts, but in this whole world. So encourage us towards that good news, Lord. I pray just as we talked about today that you stir that passion up in our hearts, a passion for you and what it is that you are doing in this world. Guide us and lead us as your church, Lord Jesus. We commit ourselves to you. And we pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. 